Microphone check. One, two, what is this? It's the five foot seven assassin in the podcast business. I am your host, Rohan Patra, the rap music plug at your service. The Rap Music Plug podcast presented by QLC TV is the remedy to the I don't have anything good to listen to problem. Through in-depth album and song reviews, as well as artist interviews and general rap commentary sprinkled in between on all of what the mainstream and underground rap scenes have to offer, this is your one-stop shop to knowing what to add to your queue, play next, or pop into your record player. Welcome to the show. What is up, family? I am pleased to have a very special guest with me today by the name of Rick Chime. He's a rapper hailing from Michigan who had a very busy 2020 dropping two full-length albums, including Stones, which I reviewed on the show last year in episode 24. Uh, We have a lot of things to talk about, more than just music, some big stuff. So I'm really excited to to have you on the show, Rick. Peace. Thank you. for. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate it. I appreciate that you're creating this content and I don't know the details of like the origins of this podcast, but just um, the fact that you decided to give your time to empower independent, not just independent, but independent uh, music creation is more impactful than I that, than a lot of people think or may know. And I know that you probably are aware of the way, the way that that can help people, but uh, people taking action to empower creators is especially in this climate um is just invaluable so i feel fortunate to be here today nazis equipped with military optics and hockey stick size artillery could knock six times on my green room door declare war and i guarantee you that they still couldn't stop you mentioned like the origins of the podcast it's actually pretty relevant to to speaking with you specifically because the show was mainly 90% already talking about rap music, except I did have my sights on trying to talk about some political topics as well as some kind of like personal development things. But I, I moved away from it for a myriad of different reasons. Mainly, it just it's kind of hard to grow a show when people don't really know exactly that one thing they want to come to you. So it's kind of a, a reason for there. But also, at the end of the day, I my main passion has always been rap. And Mm -hmm. I felt the most empowered, the most energized to talk about it. But I say that because one of the things when I made this change, which I only made it about a couple months ago, uh, is that I still was like, damn, you know, I wish I could talk about, you know, some political stuff. And I hope that I could kind of bring that into the show. And naturally, rap music, especially more than a lot of genres, touches on socioeconomic class related race related issues all the time so it's not like i have to never talk about these kind of things but specifically talking with you i'm really excited because this is the kind of opportunity where i feel like we can really explore the connections between all of these different topics because music is not does not live in a vacuum no and and to be able to so using that as the vehicle so to say but then like these other splinters off of it um i think you're smart to to narrow the focus, but not limit where it could go. And that's some of what we'll get into about what I've even done just artistically is like, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm going to create this music. Um, And I'm not talking about related to politics, but just like then seeing, all right, I'm creating this music and now I'm not going to limit where that could go and the opportunities that it could generate. Um, 
whether that means ending up wrapping in a yoga class or uh, teaching a student, it just uh, all comes. If I don't have to sacrifice the art, then I think that we uh, humans are maybe even a little bit foolish if we don't. All right, I made this thing. Now let me see what seeds it can plant and wherever the wind blows. Like if I feel mm -hmm. good about it, let's see where I could take it. So, yeah, yeah, it's really well said. So Rick, you're you're an artist that not only makes good music but has a worldview that. I feel I really jive with uh, and I want to get into a bit more as well in this interview, but you also have a very unique background and life story that I think those listening will find very inspiring. So before we get into any music talk, I wanted to start there by talking about a pivotal chapter that happened in your life when you were 15 that obviously shaped you as a person, shaped your music, etc. So could you could you walk us through a bit uh, into what happened at that time? Sure. Yeah, uh, I'll go back a little bit before just to get, so growing up, um, athletics was probably like the main protective factor in my life, basketball uh, specifically, but I played a little bit of soccer too. And so those routines were already in place. Uh, my mom and dad were both in, in the house, married, uh, a younger brother and a younger sister. My brother's four years younger, my sister 10 years younger. And uh, my dad was a huge fisherman. They would go to Canada uh, they would fly in uh, on these planes, small planes with pontoons, so they could get to the places where other people couldn't access more fish, bigger fish. And so a couple times a year, or as many as they could, they would go on these trips. And my dad and three of his best friends and the pilot uh, get into a beaver charter plane, which you all can Google it to see what I'm talking about, but a small plane landing on pontoons. And so they go in and they fish for the week in a remote location in Ontario and they are flying out on Father's Day and there's not there's still not uh, something pinpointed as far as the exact reason that this happened but the the they would say it could be related to like the pushing the weight limit these were some dudes that were uh, they they were pushing the limit of what their frame mm -hmm. could carry as far as their own personal weight. Mm -hmm. And then um, they were great fishermen. So my assumption is that they were bringing back a, a lot of fish and pushing the, the capacity of that plane and then flying out in the heat that they were in. Sometimes when you're over uh, a body of water, that could create uh, mechanical malfunctions. And so mm -hmm. the plane, something happened and, it, and the engine stalled and it crashed into a base of a mountain and started a forest fire. And so my dad, everybody died in the crash. My dad, his his friends, and the pilot. And uh, that was, as you could imagine, just a pivotal moment in our whole family's life. And and my dad has three sisters, and um, you know his both of his parents were alive at the time. And so we we came together. I would say more so at that moment, but also it just like it shook us to the core, which uh, with a knock on the door. You know, it was like blindsided, not, and I'm not trying to diminish like the pain of somebody who has some, a family member who is dealing with like a long terminal mm -hmm. illness or something. But when it just happens like this, and I would say, especially like when you're 15, like I, my dad and I were just starting to get to the part where we're able to have, I mean, he's still my dad, but we're having like those more peer conversations. Yeah. You're growing. You're starting to mature. And yeah. And, and, uh, and then it just, you know, not even just a pause button, but like the game was over as far as that went. And uh, so that was 
it was I, I don't even it's almost like there's life before that and then there's life after that in the in the regards of like just being a human and, and the mental health implications of it which i didn't have any understanding of at the time like what that even what i didn't even know what mental health was uh the next day i went to a basketball team camp and that's why i brought up basketball before is it was like that protective factor that constant that place that you could go to you went uh, the day after yeah and it's like sounds wow. wild right but like at the time my family was i was just given the option and you just kind of go with what you had i been skateboarding every day right like before that i probably would have wanted to go and skate or something you know uh, mm -hmm. and so yeah and i don't know if that was necessarily that was what happened we can't we can't rewind it all but um there wasn't a priority placed on like therapy or any of that stuff at the time and even in my school and this is no fault to like anybody in the building but because uh, I'm, I'm my school counselor is one of my best friend's dads but and they know what was up but when i went to that room they were talking about all right here's what you need to do for classes and all that um and so i i kind of like became pretty good at faking it like i'm gonna be the because everybody knew right like mm -hmm. in the room uh i'm gonna just be the dude who's gonna make a joke who's gonna ask you about what you got going on who's gonna um i was acting to a large degree for for a while um and so yeah that that right there threw me further into basketball which definitely the putting the time into being on that court propelled me to where we're at today uh, and i would say like equally paired with that was hip-hop being the soundtrack of those times i wasn't i was already listening to it at the time and i wasn't um i didn't have aspirations of being an artist or a lyricist or any of that but was kind of learning all those things that you're picking up through osmosis as i'm listening to like mob deep and nas and goody mob and i mean you could just go down the line of mm -hmm. those this is like mid 90s so those two things music and basketball i would say without even exaggerating saved my life yeah that's a like i really appreciate you getting so transparent like that and that that definitely speaks um speaks volumes and i can hear it in your music um that i have a question about you saying you were faking and i find that's a very interesting comment to make because i i can relate not to the, obviously the same situation but i was actually kind of in a uh, the other kind of boat i guess you could say when i was 10 my mom died of cancer so it's the mm. different kind of death where you kind of know it's coming but in again i was a little younger too so it's one of those things where i can't remember really understanding or believing it i kept i feel like i remember thinking some miracle was going to happen and it obviously never mm -hmm. did um but I know for me, I still don't know when it happened, but it kind of maybe was more gradual. And I want to ask you, it's that, was there a time where it, you kind of like you stopped faking or you kind of like maybe kind of met that feeling or like saw that feeling and really embraced it, broke down, whatever it may be? Or did you kind of just dive into basketball and I guess listening to music at this time? and just sort of put it behind you forever you know i don't you i don't believe that you can put it behind you it's almost like if you're a kid and your parents are telling you to clean up your bedroom you just keep shoving clothes under the bed eventually the bed's gonna be slanted mm -hmm. um now you're having back issues uh no i you can't you can't put it behind you um but i will say that i think as as i say the basketball saved my life at the same time 
it developed workaholic tendencies and um, did not have me practicing the process of just dealing with these emotions and mm -hmm. how this thing that happened was affecting how I was thinking, acting, and feeling. And so, uh, yeah, I would say that like if, if we were to go back and I was going to therapy then, they would tell you that that triggered depression that might have already been uh, present before, but it definitely turned it up. And uh, not that I, and I'm, sh I'm not saying I was just walking around all the time happy, but I'm saying like when I was getting invited to a party that I wasn't invited to last year, and I know that it's probably because they're trying to look out and be cool to the kid that they know is going through it. I wasn't going to go there and cry in the corner. I grew up in a sarcastic family, so I just leaned into the sarcasm, the jokes. I'm going to bring energy to this situation even if I'm not feeling it. That's not sustainable either. So there were definitely breakdowns all the way through, right? But then um, I would say once, and to fast forward a little bit, once basketball was no longer a part of my life from a competitive standpoint or just even being a part of the team, uh, which we can get a little bit into like where my path went after uh, high school, athletically that protective factor is removed um and then you kind of come face to face with mm -hmm. really what you've been pushing under the bed and and what was it about so before we get into i'm curious to know where the basketball kind of led to but uh what was it about basketball and music that particularly you felt you gravitate like why did you instead of gravitating to what a lot of people would go to drugs a lot of unhealthy quote-unquote coping behaviors why was it why did you feel like you were able to kind of dive into something that yeah it has some obviously some negative like outcomes too but still playing basketball listening to music these are much better uh, objectively than, than doing a lot of hard drugs or something like that sure uh because those routines were already in place before it happened so if we're talking about on a brain science level, like those neural paths were entrenched. And so you're going to go to what you already have been doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say also my teammates weren't, most of my teammates were on the same path of like, well, I'm not going to, I'm trying to be a champion. I'm trying to achieve these goals, um, whether it's academically or athletically. So they were already the people that I had in my circle were for the most part not messing with any of that stuff so it was like I fell deeper into what I was already doing That's okay yeah and right and yeah I think that definitely uh is a lesson in there actually that I mean one of the easiest ways to get over uh or at least kind of move past a situation like that or a traumatic situation depression whatever is to just already be in good habits and always be conscious. Even if I think one of the best times to adopt great habits, isn't when you're down, when you're in rock bottom is when you're actually quote unquote, fine. It's the time to kind of develop those positive behaviors so that when something does happen, it's way easier. It's just natural for you to go into your bias to be like, all right, I'll just do what I did yesterday, which is something actually good for sure. Um, so I think that, I think that's really important. Now talk to me about like, where did your, the basketball side of this lead to? Where did that end up? Well, I thought I wanted to, I wasn't heavily recruited in high school. Um, my career athletically was like, I was pretty much a part of these rebuilding programs and in college, senior, uh, high school and college. Okay. So when like, uh, 
my junior year in high school, we were one in 19 in the regular season in a team where we're playing four corners. And if a guy doesn't come and guard me, I'm at half court, like the coaches, uh, advising me to just stand there, which is like, that's, and whatever, we don't need to get into all that. Mm -hmm. Like that dude also was a great, uh, impact in my life in other ways. But my senior year, Steve Marley came and became the head coach at my high school, uh, brother of Dan Marley, who was an NBA great. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he occupied that father figure role for like a period of time and helped instill some discipline and teach us how to push ourselves past uh, where our brain might tell us to stop, or at least the beginning of that. And uh, so after high school, I was, re I was recruited to play at smaller schools like NAIA, uh, smaller than my high school. And I wasn't really excited about that. And really, like, I just wanted to get out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm -hmm. even though I only went to Kalamazoo, which is like an hour away. It was, uh, when I look back, it was like, I need a separation from this community that, although that it held me up, it also was like a reflective mirror of, of my dad's mm -hmm. death. And uh, so I thought I was gonna coach college. I go to Western Michigan University. Steve Marley, my coach tells me, if you wanna coach, you need to stay around the game. So I became a manager at, the, on, at Western Michigan. And uh, quickly realized, I mean, I was learning a ton, but quickly realized that, oh my gosh, like how valuable that protective factor of the game was, being mm -hmm. on the team and playing. After that first year, I asked if I could stay for the summer and work out with no guarantees. And uh, an assistant coach told me that it'd be a waste of both of our time. So I almost transferred back down to one of those smaller schools that was, look was looking to have me play. Mm -hmm. But I loved my experience at Western. It was just that one piece was missing. I returned the next year still as a manager, learning all the intricacies of the game and filming the practices and just like soaking it up and being around these coaches, cutting game tape, uh, helping out in practice when I could. And then at Christmas time, four guys didn't get back on their the plane to come back. We had Christmas night practice. I was there as a, a manager, which is like kind of in line with those workaholic tendencies. And uh, then all of a sudden there weren't enough people to do the 11 man drill. And so I found myself kind of falling into the practice at that point, just as a body to occupy some space. And then I practiced for the rest of that Christmas break, which was like the best sore I've ever felt. Right? I wasn't training for this opportunity. It just, but I was in proximity to it. And mm -hmm. so, um, then that turned into, I got a Jersey and I'm kind of both things. So I would start I would set everything up for practice from a managerial perspective. Then I would practice. Then I would like maybe end a little bit early to pack everything up, get ready for a road trip. Um, and then that coaching staff left. Uh, they were actually asked to leave or encouraged to retire mm -hmm. or whatever you want to say. And uh, I thought that was it. And then the next staff came in and I was a name on the roster and got a clean slate. And then that's where it got pretty special where it turned into a scholarship and uh, be getting in games and, getting some playing time and developing relationships with, with a lot of guys that I still speak with today that definitely impacted my path going forward and as it relates to music as well. Time waits for no man. Time waits for no mads. Time waits for no man. Young skate with no plans. On dates with romance. Wait, time waits for romance. Mine's baked with no plans. Mine's baked with those plans. Those, those, those. When, it, when we look at the, the music side of this, so... When was the point that you felt compelled to not only just listen to music, but actually pick up a pen and start writing it yourself and creating? 
I mean, in high school, we'd mess around just freestyling. Just, I mean, a lot of people do this, right? But like mm -hmm. Rick Chime comes from, my name is Patrick. Uh, my buddy Dave that I grew up with would be like, chime in on this, Rick. And I would just be, just to make them laugh at a party or whatever. But um, once we got deep into college, uh, Division One college athletics is pretty much a full-time job. And so um, I went and got some equipment with some of the insurance money from my dad's crash. And we started to create as a release. The thing, basketball had become this job and our coach was pretty militaristic. And so we started just, me and my buddy Reggie, creating with not an intention of anything really, but it was just like, it became its own protective factor in the bedroom at our apartment. Uh, days where we had off days or nights where we decided to stay in instead of go get into whatever was happening on campus. And, but I wouldn't tell you, I was thinking about being a creator then. And if I look back, it's like, I must've just been blind, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, all the signs were there, but then you get in these road trips. You're you're going to you're driving maybe nine hours to Buffalo. We're not chartering many flights. Yeah. Or all these Ohio schools. There's like a lot of four or five hour bus rides, and so I started just, you know, my notebook started filling up with uh, things unrelated to the classes that I was taking, and the margins <laughs> of my pages started to fill up with that too. Uh, but that didn't. It's weird because I wasn't like, all right, now I'm going to do this. It was like, oh, I want to do something in music. And I really realized that like basketball was something I love, but maybe not my true love. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, when it got time to be done with school, like in my senior year, it wasn't, I wasn't feeling excitement about going and joining the bottom part of a bottom level of a coaching staff and working my way up. And I would say that my dad's crash really has impacted my approach to how time gets spent because like mortality was right in front of your face. He's 42 at the time. So, mm -hmm. Uh, so I wasn't interested in just going, and I remember watching him put on his tie in the morning with like a dead face, not, that's the wrong word, a blank face, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, cause he's about to go do something that he really wished he didn't have to go do. Uh, so yeah. Uh. The, so one of my teammates at Western, uh, for one year was named Maverick Carter. And he now is a business partner of LeBron James. And yeah, I was saying, where's that name? Yeah. Okay. Damn. Wow. So then that's, so then when I, a lot of my story is like putting yourself in proximity to opportunity, not as it relates to Maverick, but like I wasn't supposed to be a division one athlete, but I was a manager who was in the mix. And so then when opportunity came, I could, I was there to take it. And so I, and I wasn't thinking about this at the time, but it's the same principle applied to what happened next. So after college, I went to, um, I, w I ended up going to New York and interning at Def Jam. And that happened because at, by that time, Maverick had started to meet people in the entertainment industry through the circles that he was traveling in with LeBron. And if anybody knows him, he's just like a master of naturally, organically connecting with humans wherever they're at. And so uh, he looked out and got me connected with a guy named Mike Kaiser, who was then the vice president in, in charge of promotions at Def Jam. and. Um, you know, it wasn't that simple, but like after they connected those dots and then after me calling and calling and calling uh, to follow up and then eventually just getting in the car and showing up at Def Jam to like to get this internship that I've been told that I was going to be able to have uh, that turned into a great experience where I was able to get a picture of how that whole building worked and how the industry worked, which then eventually led me to realizing that I was 
better off on the artistic side or mm-hmm. at least like a blur of those two. And and what did that experience at Def Jam tell you specifically about the industry and industry, but also the label, the major label atmosphere and world? And do you find your opinion on major labels is favorable after working there or unfavorable, like many people's opinions are on labels these days? You know, I, we could talk about any, we could talk about an independent artist career and say that there's favorable parts of it and unfavorable parts of it. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't make a blanket statement. I know that a bunch of people in that building um, gave me the opportunity to learn and experiment and with on their dime, right? And uh, and to be able to, I ended up going from an internship on the lifestyle task force that Lior Cohen had put together uh, under a woman named Courtney Adams, who was amazing. And then another guy, Mike Israeli, um, who had been interns themselves, who had been promoted. And then eventually I was interning for the general manager, Randy Acker. And when I got into that role now, because I'm in the office of the general manager, I'm getting a taste of every single lane. And so... Um, we could say negative things or positive things if we want, but I know that that access was just priceless. And and um, then I took the model of just saying yes and putting yourself next to the opportunity from the managerial stuff in basketball and just tried to make myself indispensable by showing up first and being the last one there. There were time, many times where he would call, Randy Acker would call his office to maybe leave a voicemail thinking that then we'd hear it in the morning. Mm-hmm to take action and I would pick up the phone, you know, I'd still be there. Um, and it's like, if I, I can get there early and stay late, if, especially if you're not making me run till I puke. Right. Yeah. So it's like, take the things that from basketball and apply it over here. And, uh, yeah, we could say a lot, I could tell you negative and positive things, but I would say that overall it doesn't even matter. It's like, all right, get the information, take every experience as data, and then mm-hmm. apply that to whatever your vision is and your dreams and your goals. And, uh, you know, one thing I do wish is I wish that before my dad died in that plane crash, I had already had those positive routines about your mental health and, like, dealing with, um, with like, uh, you know, how you're going to handle this adversity because, because my bosses or my coaches were essentially occupying the space of that father figure. And right. so if I look back, there might've been like times where I was, uh, would have reacted different in situations, but no, it was, a, it was a beautiful experience where I'm seeing like a young Kanye, um, who's preparing college dropout. I mean, it was no, wow. it was not unique for him to be in the offices. When they, when you hear those stories about him rapping to the employees and trying to basically convince the building that he was, worthy mm-hmm. like we were there you know he pulled us me and uh, my buddy walter randolph into uh an office and showed us like the slow jams video it's just like asking wow. questions and uh he just you could say whatever you want about kanye as well but um he had belief in himself and not just that but he was gonna go and get it and so one thing that it did that experience did for me is it's like all of a sudden i'm in very close proximity to to, to jay-z and Ghostface and uh, Kanye West and even just like because of Maverick being introduced to these people through LeBron me being introduced to the building through the, I, I got acceptance Kevin Lyles showed me nothing but love um, you know and and again like people could say whatever they want about anyone but Lior Cohen showed me nothing but love 
and uh, Randy Acker did a great job of empowering me and like letting me fail, to be honest, in situations where I didn't necessarily know what I was doing. And we even like started doing some independent creation of like managing an, or helping an artist named God Juan from Nigeria and Houston, Texas, who's a friend of one of my teammates in college, Reggie Berry. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in those situations, like, I just don't know how I would have ever got that opportunity had I not gone to where it was happening. Right. So I would encourage anybody if you're like if you have these dreams and there's these unknowns, right? It's like if you can get to the to the place. I don't need to go and listen to 25 interviews where people saying here's all that's wrong with the major label system. There's stuff wrong with every system, but let's get in. I want to get inside of that thing and see what's really up. And and so I'm forever grateful for for the people that helped me get that spot. Those that were open to teaching me things and give me opportunities and allow me to pour water on the seeds of love that I have for the art and, and accept me into that culture even further than my participation from the Midwest as a spectator. Wow. That's, that's, uh, I didn't even, I didn't know that timing when you were in Def Jam was around the time of Kanye's rise and all that. Yeah. That, yeah, I feel like your story, I see a lot of similarities or patterns, I guess you could say. It's being in proximity, but it's also uh, of opportunity, but it's also just, it's about creating good behaviors and being in the right situation, regardless of what else is happening. Because it may be something incredibly sad and tragic, like what happened when you were 15, but also it could be just, you're at, take an internship, you're not even sure what to expect, and then you get like, yeah, you're right. I don't know how you would see any of this experience firsthand, secondhand, fourthhand. Uh, the most people hear about Kanye's story or have in terms of experience of managing an artist is hearing some random guy speak to it in an interview. That's about all you'll get. You were actually there. I can't imagine the the experience and the learning you got from that. That's 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 truly incredible. So it's weird because it's like I was talking about being a part of rebuilding situations is like I was there for well, I was in New York for like two and a half years. But when I got there, all of the executives, so Lior, Julie Greenwald, Mike Kaiser, Kevin Lyles, they all ended up going to Warner. Right. Um, and then L.A. Reid came in. So I was actually then temp assisting in L.A. Reid's office um, for a while. So I kind of saw like also I was blessed to see the juxtaposition of two ways that the, these buildings can get run mm -hmm. um, and then ended up going with who was the general manager, Randy Acker, to work on Jay-Z's film Fade to Black in a music supervisor role. But I want to say that none of this, like, it's it's horrendous that my dad died in a plane crash, but I would, none of the, anything we've talked about since would have happened had that not happened. So it's like the worst wow. things that happen to you, it really is about how we react and a lot of it is about luck in all of our stories, but also it's like preparation, meeting opportunity. Right. And um, yeah, so I don't know. There's, I wish that it was a time where there's more documentation, right? Like it was just taken for granted. Like the first dam in the building, it's Ludacris's chicken and beer release party. And like Shaka <laughs> oh Zulu's right there. And like they bring in chicken in 40s, like the first dam at this place. And you're like, wait, what is happening? You know? Um, oh my God. And yeah, so I just wish that there, or I don't, it would be cool to have documentation of those times. And all I really have is these snapshots. And um, I have a couple ideas of kind of creating some audio presentations of those times with the people that were there, but that's just in the works right now. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I'd like to hear that for sure. 
Yeah. Could you could you get into you mentioned something I was going to get to here about that music supervisor role on uh, Jay Z's Fade to Black? How did that really like? How exactly were you involved in that? Because obviously I know the title, but what exactly did you do, and how was that experience for you? It was it was amazing. So. Randy Acker, who was my boss at Def Jam, is the, he was the music supervisor. Then I became assistant music supervisor uh, in collaboration with a company called Radical Media. And then another guy involved with the, the thing is uh, Rich Kleinman, who is now business partner of Kevin Durant. Yeah, I know and, all these names you're saying. I'm like, I yeah, don't know that name. <laughs> what the hell? So, and I'm not trying to name drop. I'm just trying to tell you. No, like, no, he's... it's important to the story. Yeah. Uh, and so like he was current at the time uh, and business partner with Mark Ronson uh, for Alito Records. And so that was kind of like the crew and as well as um, a lawyer named Jennifer Justice. And so I'm in that mix and I'm not I'm not qualified to be the music supervisor on my own. So I'm taking delegation from Randy. And one of the things that there's this binder with all these photos, just still shots from a random studio session. There's somebody in the back corner that nobody knows who it is in this one scene. Uh, because I don't know if when this all this documentation was happening, if they knew that they were gonna make a film in the way that they did. And so we had to get these clearances. And so I was basically on a scavenger hunt. That was one of my jobs to locate and get these people to sign off on their appearance in the film, mm. which was really interesting, you know, going up into back into the Def Jam building, but also into other buildings because the people are switching jobs and like this person says well i don't know who these are but playing pats like you need i know who that is and it sends me over here and and then i'm so you're on a hunt for like this random image in an era where the internet wasn't what it was so i did that I helped execute some contracts um and you know i feel like if i keep telling these stories it's going to seem like i'm just doing a series of name drops but like <laughs> like we had to clear i'll tell this we had to clear in this in the performance Jay-Z does a tribute. So if you don't know, the film is based on the creation of the Black Album, which at the time was supposed to be uh, the end. His retirement, him. yeah. And then also the show at Madison Square Garden that was, at the time, no one, a rapper hadn't performed at Madison Square Garden since Run DMC. And so he sold this thing out in minutes. The album had leaked, and New York already knew it. It was dominate. It was the soundtrack to, I don't know what it was anywhere else, but at New York, it's all you would hear. And so he did a tribute to Biggie and Pac in there, and there was a, a Tupac song that was playing. And so we had to get clearance from Death Row. And so some of the things that they would be like, all right, you need to call here, you need to call here, you need to call here, and try to execute these contracts. And so I call, and then and Suge Knight just answered the phone. Like, it wasn't like somebody else. <laughs> oh, like, so my goodness. There's these weird what situations, the right? Like, you're pretty sure you're going to talk to a, uh, an some assistant. Random, or yeah, like yeah, some random, yeah, an administrative person. Yeah, it's like, yeah. So, and I don't want to, I mean, I want to tell you these stories, but I don't want to just like have it be a series of me saying other people's names. But those experiences, all of them, just gave me this access that you can't put a price tag on. And it demystified um, or it just like proved that like starstruck is a lie. Like that's not real, right? These are people who worked hard surround themselves with teams of positive people who were um had similar missions and and had took action with consistency is like really what i would take away from all of it and 
and I'm thankful for every one of them that allowed me to be a part of it. That's a really good lesson. That's a really good lesson. So now we've kind of talked a lot about your backstory. When we get into you as a musician, first, I want to talk about this uh, Daily Pieces 365 series that you did with uh, uh, Yelnam Evid, uh, when you release a song every day for the entire year. So first off, how did you meet um, Yelnam? Uh, so 10 years before we did this collaboration, I was there was a place called Billy's Lounge in Grand Rapids, Michigan that had a Monday open mic. And at the time, it became a spot where they were empowering. It wasn't typically a hip-hop open mic, but we just kind of started infiltrating it. And there was a crop of MCs that were all kind of at the same stage of coming up at the time. And so those were our shows. We couldn't get shows at the time. And that's where I was going to get reps. And he had come, Yeldum had come from uh, Muskegon, Michigan to check out the open mic and he basically cornered me at my car in the parking lot and got in my car and was playing me music and like he can rap very well as well and was just spit i mean i don't think that i was going to get out of this car into without some relationship developing right like mm -hmm. he he targeted me basically and um and then our collaborations were mostly with live shows moving forward. He was in a group called Strange Box. We're working on uh, doing a better job of presenting his backstory and like cataloging that content as well. So I don't even know if you'll be able to find that stuff online right now, but um, let you know when that gets all together. But mm -hmm. yeah, so it was like seeds planted 10 years before. But in all those interactions, all those shows, and a couple of studio collaborations, but mostly just becoming good friends that's how the seeds were planted and then once i had the idea to to try to do this endeavor that was the only human that i knew who would be uh, reckless enough to take on the challenge and w what was the what was the real purpose of this project because obviously someone would ask like why not just release this music in a more traditional format what was the purpose of doing it in this fashion I teach hip hop lyricism one-on-one uh, to, -on -one to students. And I was telling my students these things that I knew were good information. And then I looked at myself and I was like, oh, wait a minute, my routines aren't matching up with this. So at first I started by just jacking beats on my own and just, just to make sure that I was creating and writing every day. I did like 40 days or so. Then my laptop died and, and that wasn't a sustainable model anyways. Like I'm not a, a skilled mixing engineer. Um, and like the, when you're not producing the, when it's, when you're jacking a beat, there's just a limited scope of what you can even do with that art. Yeah. And so, uh, but I, but it's a, it was a result of me telling these students to do something every day and realizing I wasn't doing it myself. And I went to New York, uh, to meet, this is a series of name drops to meet with, to meet up with Gary V. Um, Vaynerchuk, I was basically targeting him to, I wanted to just get him in a room to see if, the energy that I'm seeing through this screen is real. Mm -hmm. um, and his, they had used a couple of our songs and content that they were creating that I just been sending. So I had a relationship with a dude named D-Rock. And uh, so I had said, I'm coming to New York. My friends, the Accidentals are performing. You should come check it out. They uh, couldn't make it, but he was dropping a shoe. I went and met with Gary. I mean, I really just bought the shoe and had a five minute conversation with him. Mm -hmm. And uh and then he asked me what I wanted and I was pretty, and I could tell he was maybe gonna 
to help me and what, but I didn't have an, I said, here are the ways I could, my skill set could overlap with what you're doing, but mm -hmm. I didn't have a definitive answer for what I wanted. And so I didn't say anything. He's like, just email me. And to be honest, I still haven't emailed him back. Like <laughs> I need to, but like me not having to answer was like him helping me. Yeah, it was. So I, yeah. <laughs> so I went home and saw, he had a video in the studio with Nipsey Hussle that was like in Gary Vaynerchuk saying, somebody's going to make a song every day for 365 days. They're going to call it daily uh, something 365. Wow. And so then I called Yalnum and was like, hey. Um, and so we took that action and we did make a song. There's more than 365 of them. At the time we were releasing them on Bandcamp, but like even the mixing process, that's not sustainable. So we pulled back on the release of them daily, but just continued the creation of them daily. Mm -hmm. And then that brings us to the album that you reviewed, Stones, which is 14 of those, those puzzle pieces put together into an album. Don't get it twisted, Donnie is not the only evil among us. He's a humongous front for his cronies. The system and both sides are corrupt. There shouldn't only be two sides. It's all fucked that I try not to rain doomsday on the parade, but it's tough when you feel the effects of climate change. That is very interesting because that's actually a question I was going to ask a little later, uh, but I'll go to it Sorry. now because it's no, 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 because that's that's actually really addressing something important here. So one of the things that I really appreciated about Stones was the like the attention to detail and particularly when it came to painting the picture with the sound of the album because it gave it a lot of replay value. There's things obviously like there's sound effects like cars honking, birds chirping that added a nice atmosphere. Yeah. But there's even something that I actually just recently caught, like literally a couple days ago when I was listening to the album again. It's on track two where the where Gary Vee's speaking. He's going on, he's going on some kind of rant, right? Yeah. And I wasn't didn't catch it at first, but it sounds like it's a whistling sound of a pressure cooker. And if you guys have heard the album, pressure cooker is an actual track, one of the standouts later on in the album. Mm -hmm. And I felt like what he was saying and all that stuff, it felt like a like a direct connection to that song where you are on that track, just like spilling out all your emotions and thoughts in a very stream of consciousness. You're covering a vast variety of topics. Basically, my question is, is like, how did you approach creating this album? You're, you're kind of hinted to that, but it sounded very much like these songs were created just for this album, but it sounds like that's not the case. And could you walk yeah. us through like how you, like how you guys actually pieced these tracks together and made it all fit? So when you're creating them every day like that, you start to write from all parts of yourself. And so there's through a process of like trying to, whether it's like the actual production sound, like of the instrumentation, you could find like a uniform kind of like it fits throughout that project. Um, but also the content lyrically, um, it was just, I mean, a lot of just listening, listening, listening the audio that you're talking about with Gary talking, that was actually the audio of the video that he had used one of our songs on previously. So it's not just like grabbing something random. Mm. Um, the, but that pressure cooker song, I didn't even remember I made it. Like we had assembled a lot of the album and I was just digging through these sessions that are, gosh, there's hard drives that are, um, I need someone to help me with some organization. If you, <laughs> them. not you, but, um, and uh, so just by creating every day, it gives yourself the opportunity for these things to happen. You say that song was stream of consciousness and it was. Um, 
But I would say like the way that it came together was through identifying the pieces that seemed like they fit in the same family and then reduction. So if you listen to it, there's songs where it's like a verse and a half. And you're mm -hmm. like, what was happening? That was because there was a second half of that verse. But to, in the name of the project now, how do we give this piece, how do we make it as effective as it can be in the context of this project? And I would say that's another byproduct of having created so much as you become a little bit less attached to. If I only have 15 songs, I'm probably not trying to cut out parts of verses. Right. When you have hundreds and you're like, no, let's serve the album, then, because I'm not going to go back and re-record this stuff based on the way that it was created. So I, we used reduction as a major, major tool. And then all those soundscapes and things that you heard, the, the birds, the um, rain, all those things are after the fact, those sprinkles that kind of glue it all together. And what was the kind of atmosphere you were going for or net result uh, when it, like, net result from this album? Like, what was the feeling you were trying to evoke or the vibe you were trying to evoke? <laughs> I feel like if I give you an answer, I'll be lying to you. Like, I was just trying to get the first batch of them out. Like, I was, I'm, like, scared to have these all just sit in a hard drive and, and then, and I allow my reward to be creating them instead of getting them to humans. So, like, if, a, if the elements of a routine or cue action and reward it was becoming clear that they were that the reward i already felt a lot of benefit in my life by doing the process and so yeah i don't want to like intellectualize it too much i don't know why we it was like here's the songs that started to make sense for maybe being the first ones and then um i mean the content being a lot of commentary on what what's been happening but what is now under a magnifying glass in our world and, and in america it, i guess it like just made sense that those would be some of the lead but i could have easily chose to put the love song pieces together and then put out an album that's about love so and that's gonna happen right but it's mm -hmm. just yeah i, I don't want to like it, some of it is just you have to take action right so, so I could tell you it was all very spelled out and planned out, but it was a decision to take daily action. And now I'm just trying to put the puzzle together. We are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you're talking about the topics here, and that very much, I think, was a good choice. It felt very relevant, Stones, when I was listening to the time, especially in 2020. So I have a couple questions on the topics and the subject matter. So why did you... Why did you feel it was important to talk about these ideas? But the second part of that is more specific here is like in a genre like rap that is obviously started by black folks. It's it's that's like where this genre was created, where it was originated. Um, it's a culture centered around black people and the black experience originally. So as a white artist, do you feel like you have a a sort of, I don't know if this is a perfect word, but sort of like a responsibility to use your voice to make music that sheds light on topics like racism, classism, all these corrupt institutions that, again, often afflict Black folks more than most? Uh, I think that creators have a responsibility to create from an authentic place. And some of the story, my story that we've talked about has put me 
like basketball popped the suburban bubble that I was living in at a early age in middle school. But then and once you get to college and your teammates are from Houston, Detroit, East St. Louis, like, and the, and you're spending, they be, these are your brothers. Um, I could never, as a pale face human in America or the world, I'm not, I don't understand. I could never understand exactly what somebody who is black or brown living in this world is experiencing, but I was given the additional privilege of spending thousands of hours with people who were dealing with this every day. So, so I got perspective because of that. And then if I'm trying to make a song every day and I'm just working to just take what I'm seeing, thinking, acting or and feeling and filtering that into content, it's going to come out because you can't make something every day. And if you're going to try to like, I just had to react to exactly what was happening and not overthink it. Exactly what I was thinking. Sometimes the hit record and start speaking and not knowing where the song was going to go and building it in punches. If you're a white human creating hip hop and you don't have information or perspective, or you're not trying to have empathy for the experience of African-Americans, black and brown humans, like I, you better, I guess, unless you're gonna make a song about how much you don't know. So with stones, I'm throwing stones at other perspectives, at other people, I suppose, at the system, but I'm also, we're throwing them at ourselves. It's like, I don't have all the answers and a starting point is understanding like, I don't know shit. Like as much as I know, there's tons more that I don't know. And as it comes to the black experience, I could study every day and have a million conversations with people who that's their reality to gain understanding to and then using that understanding to help me become empathetic to the, that but yeah really like every single one of us are dealing with different situations and like like i in college i we got on an elevator at a hotel with teammates many times and people chose not, and i might be the only white dude in getting in the elevator and many and then people would choose not to get on the elevator when there was space for them so I have that experience because I was there as a party to it, but those dudes, my teammates who are in the elevator with me, that is no surprise to them and that's what they've been experiencing. Right. And so it's like, I'm getting this peek into their life as a part of their basketball family, but um, never gonna really know exactly. The beautiful thing about hip hop is that there's been people who have been honestly articulating their experience for a long time so we don't really have excuses for not going to get some uh get those insights and i would say it was great for me from the age of 14 13 14 to be hearing i mean if you go listen to goody mob soul food album right now it's still it applies right now oh yeah and that thing came out in the mid 90s or and i i've mentioned that twice but there's a bunch of art that was and i didn't even know what i was consuming at the time and i think that that informed my perspective and um, I want to tell you that my mom was raising me the right way and that I would I would like to be able to say that even if I didn't have these experiences that we've talked about here, that I would still be um, trying to be on the side of justice and I wouldn't be like a bigoted, I wouldn't be at the Trump rally. Mm -hmm. I would like to say that, but there's no way we'll know. And so I think that exposure to things that are outside of our experience when we're young 
is one of the most important things that can give us context, allow us to understand what we don't know and help us to grow. And that, that's very well said. And I want to go to, as I mentioned earlier, one of the standouts, pressure cooker, because you, you make a lot of interesting commentary there, particularly about how uh, Trump is not some unique force that he was just kind of like a front man for all of these powerful people in politics that have been running it for years. And that Obama's reign showed you that the, the whole idea that people like to say is that, oh, with Trump, the, the racism is now in the open when it was always in the open. It's just maybe more like air, like more, even more just dumbed down and childish, I guess you could say, and, and, and in your face, but it still was in your face that, to say the least. So my question is like, are you feeling better at all uh, in regards to the direction of the States now that Biden's in office or is it kind of just, you're feeling like it's still on the same path it was beforehand? I mean, I don't think it's, if we're talking about the structure of the country, like that didn't change because the leader changed. But the, I think we, it's very evident that the way that a leader communicates and the language they choose and the tone they choose uh, does have a direct impact on the actions that their supporters feel comfortable taking. And so I don't think that the Biden administration has reformed this, like ripped apart this system that exists. Mm -hmm. That's just not, the game is the game. Yeah. But I would rather have him coaching than, you know, than the, I don't even know what you call him. Yeah. Uh, I just can't, like Donald Trump is a reality show professional wrestler who became a, who became a, a leader, but yeah. he wasn't a leader. He occupied the space of a leader. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel better about that, right? But like, I think yeah. that the idea that there's two parties is some gang shit. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to me like the most, like the best way to choose, to give us the, like the options to have uh, progressive ideas like rise to the top and to mm -hmm. have like yeah so i don't know i don't understand how we, it could just be one of two choices yeah and why how we think that that works it doesn't yeah it doesn't it doesn't at all so if we move to just one other kind of thing i wanted to ask about your music so obviously we've talked about now in depth your journey your life story mm -hmm. and all that, at least to me, is very inspiring. But on the other hand, another person could look at this from a different perspective and say that, oh, your life story was tragic or, or take a more negative spin on it. Yet when I listen to your music, the latter of that negativity or the, the feeling of tragedy or whatever, it doesn't ever seem to be the prevailing force. I do feel a sense of kind of clarity, hope, peace, that kind of positivity. So in your mind, what is it that you hope listeners gain from listening to your music? Yeah, that's a weird thing. The people, thank you for noticing the positivity. I would say that that was built in there as a mechanism to, like if I'm gonna, maybe not consciously, but if I'm gonna be performing these things over and over, like I reached a point where I'm on stage talking about like some 
depressed song content in the past and like you go on stage and you repeat it over and over again someone's coming up into you and saying thank you that song really helped me and i'm thinking dang that didn't i'm glad it helped you because i've it, i'm feeling like garbage after performing that right mm -hmm. uh so the positivity that i was putting in there is like as much for myself as for other people but um i'd say like you know everybody could go and back through their experiences and how they perceive what they've encountered and it could be looked at as a tragedy or or something great and like i wouldn't have told you this when i was younger but like right now i mean i know that i couldn't have just told you the story i told you and all the amazing things that happened and the people that i met and if that hadn't happened like my dad dying was a catalyst for for all this stuff and so um yeah like I, i'm trying to we can't erase the past so mm -hmm. so we can make observations of what we think is right wrong or whatever but in the end i can't go and erase any of it and so it's like how do we react how the only thing that really we can control is how you react to what happens to us and i'm not also creating with an idea of what i want like i want you to listen if you listen to it and whatever you take from it is what you take from it i i'd none of those songs that you heard i did i sit down and say this is all right i'm gonna write this so that this happens okay because i don't know like you said pressure cooker the sound of the pressure cooker remind you of that song mm -hmm. that's awesome but really that was a tea kettle on and if you listen to it again you'll hear a coffee grinder and if yeah. i put out a video it would be me making coffee listening to that gary v talk that stuff so like we can go in any direction we want but like yeah. now that i told you i ruined it for you right like and so so like people are going to take what they take based on how they're experiencing the world all right God, i don't want to quit investing in companies who profit off of messing up everything that you've created how about i offer you a little kickback i bet nobody's ever been as ballsy to suggest that god would so last thing before i kind of just want to end this off with like a kind of some rapid fire questions sure even pre-pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the major statistics, I don't need to get into them, but they basically outline a pretty clear illustration that the rates of depression and other kind of key mental health factors are worsening somehow. So mm -hmm. why do you think kind of mental health struggles or feelings of kind of loneliness are on the rise? And why do you think it's so important uh, to promote mental health awareness? Because obviously that's something you do very obviously in your music. Thanks. Um, yeah, I got into that through a collaboration with the Mental Health Foundation of West Michigan going in to schools and talking to kids about mental health awareness, which really, as I was educating them, I was educating myself. Um, there's a lot of variables, but a lot of it is related to, like, you know, the technology and the these applications that have been engineered to take our time and turn it into advertising dollars. And then a young brain, and not just a young brain, I mean, all of us, right? Like we became right. addicted to these things quick. And then that becoming the mode for how we know what each other have going on, how we connect. We're not using voices or faces or being in person with each other as much. Um, and those things are engineered by, with, well, in, in collaboration with like people who used to work at casinos who are experts on how to keep you there longer spending your money. And so 
if a 12 year old, a nine year old, whatever, however old, I don't advocate a nine year old having social media, but they do. Mm-hmm. They post something and it gets however many likes or clicks. And then they judge that, that they assign that to their value. Um, and it's directly connected to like dopamine release in our brain. Right. So I think that that's a part of it. Um, and then their parents are on those the devices as well. And so it's really hard for an addict to tell an addict to stop. And like I would go into schools, this is like a sidebar, but I would go into schools and I would see sometimes teachers like not paying attention or and almost like their nonverbals are telling me that they don't think that this talk about mental health is of value. It's like, you're got my kid out of their English class. I need to be teaching this, whatever today's lesson is. Yeah. And at first I was like, I was mad at them. I'm like, and they would even be on their phones and the thing I'm talking in front of 500 kids. And, but then I thought about it and it's like, well, if they just, if they justify this as valuable, then they have to look at their own mental health. And, and generationally we're just getting now to where it's normalized to talk about these things and where kids know what, that it even exists. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're still having to deprogram the, the stigma and the things that these that our older populations had as their normal and we can say whatever we want to young people but what we model is the most important part of it and so uh yeah i mean i think that two things are happening people are more open to talk about how their mental health is so now you know that it exists. Now it's like more of a topic. So it's not buried like I told you I was doing mm-hmm. when I was younger. But also the older populations are, some of them, if they're trying, are trying to catch up and like break down their relationship with their mental health, which puts them in a position where maybe they're not prepared to help their own kids. Or maybe they didn't develop, put that into place where their kids had access to the resources if they had the money to be able to do it they weren't putting them into the situations and Mm -hmm. then if we really get into it their system is not designed like we can't yeah we say we want every kid to go and talk to a counselor but we there's no way that if they all did we would even be able to come close to providing them with the 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 people to do it you've got counselors at schools who are like okay i'm going to be at the elementary school for this part of the day the middle school for this part of the day the high school for this part of the day and it's like that's going to turn into burnout and you can't even serve the population. So yeah, I don't have the answers, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you're speaking to a lot of things and systemically that's kind of sets the tone, sets the foundation and it makes it impossible. Like you said, to even actually even get those outcomes. And even if it was possible, just the, the mentality of all of these and like kind of like the, what do you call it? The messages that all of these kind of advertising and these, big businesses do is that it, it doesn't promote it doesn't make you think mental health is something to care about they're like oh get your money yeah. advertise your crap go be popular on social media get those likes it's um listen if you really vicious if you cycle had meditation to start every single like if if let's say the first three minutes of every class period was deep breathing from the time that you were a first grader wow. or every hour you did that like there's studies now that tell us that that would be great for your brain, that it would combat some of this stuff that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But we care more about multiplication tables. Yeah. It's and like, true. So that information is there. 
it could, it would have, it would, if we, it is possible that that could be a shift that happened and we could know that like that is going to change a kid's life by the time that they're there. Imagine if when your mom, by the time you're 10, you have mindfulness practices that are deeply ingrained into your life. I'm not saying you didn't, but like that it was just a normal thing that every kid you knew we did this. Yeah. Uh, that, and I, that's just one little part of it. Right. But like that isn't rocket science. Ivy league schools studied it. They are telling you what's happening in your brain now. Why are we not doing it? Like it tell we, we don't want you to have a good, like the system doesn't want you to be in tune with tired thinking, acting and feeling. Yeah. Because at the, because at a high level, it, uh, it doesn't play into the, the power structures that exist. If people were all mindful uh, to your point earlier, if people, if there was more than two parties, all of these things lead to, the opposite of solidification and consolidation of power. And that's kind of yeah. always that we want to keep our place. We want to keep our money coming in. Yeah. The profit incentives is, is really honestly always at the root of these problems. And yeah. it's kind of a societal decision in a way that'll happen over time. Do we want to keep just, yeah, multiplication, all these other things that, yeah, it's good to know, but we are clearly making a choice. We're making a choice that we'd rather you be a good, productive person in society for the economy and be hooked on antidepressants for the rest of your life. And, and if I the have pharmaceutical the yeah, if I have the mindfulness practice, I'll be better at the time when you try to teach me the multiplication. I'm gonna. Oh be yeah, it's so much better. It's better for you. That's the crazy part. It's better for you as an actual productive society member too when it comes to the economy because you're a happy person, a calm person, a non-stressed out person. Obviously, going to do better work be more creative okay yeah that this has been this has been a great great discussion and i now just wanted to wrap it with a couple just small small little questions here to get your sure. thoughts on it yeah what was your favorite beat that you've ever heard or top five because that's a pretty hard question obviously um uh, gosh um well i this this answer would change all the time but like the uh intro to commons album b is something that we've Ooh. been bumping with uh the nine-year-old young champion that's part of my life so yeah that's i think that's one of the most solid pieces of production but there's that's the answer that whatever there's a trillion answers yeah no, well that's a good choice that's i think definitely one of the best kanye productions is just uh yeah it's just sublime that, that's some crazy stuff uh what's a what era of hip-hop do you appreciate the most it's just gonna be what every person would say is like there's something to the, I can't speak to the details of it, but it's something to what happens to your brain with the music you listen to when you're in adolescence. So like, I would say that, that the mid to late nineties hip hop, I mean, even into the early beginning part of two thousands was for me, but that was just because of the time that I was in, I would imagine. Uh, but there's just so, I, and also just, it was the time where you had, the barrier for entry was a little harder. So you not, there's less voices. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's a positive thing, but like it was a little more curated and so yeah. their options were what they were and um the industry was just learning how to really make money off of it and so there was it wasn't as driven by dollars yeah yeah no i definitely agree it's less commercialized uh and last question what was your favorite album of 2020 the reason that one of the reasons you and i are talking right now is you did uh review of the lasso um small bills 
Yeah, and I'm not even so I guess I shouldn't speak to that album specifically, but I'm really I love what he what the last was doing in general. Oh, okay. Um as a producer, but let me think. Gosh. Homeboy Sandman put out a good project. Oh, um, amazing. Yeah, I don't these are like the things that I don't really I have a radio show called Mind to Chime Radio where uh it's an hour every week and I like to highlight art from a lot of different people, but I think it has led me to not be listening to full albums as much. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I understand that. Yeah, that's a terrible answer. Um Yeah. I think that I'll just say I like the way that Homeboy Sandman delivers in conversational tone and doesn't sacrifice what he's trying to say for like anything else other than that it seems like what he's feeling at that moment. So I love what he did. Yeah. Uh, I think Black Thought has done some amazing work recently. But, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh okay, so I just wanted to wrap now and just get a quick quick understanding of what you have planned in 2021. Okay. Um well, so Daily Pieces 365 was a thing that we did and we did that every day. We released those songs, but also other people took action. My mom made a painting every day in that year. Wow. And um so I'm trying to do a better job and this is an example of of like just encouraging humans, anybody who like you right now, random you're not random, but person that I don't know who's yeah. watching this, and not you, but whoever, uh, some Alexa who's watching this in <laughs> Tennessee. Like, I, one thing I want to do is encourage you to decide to take some action every day towards something for a year and see what happens. You don't have to. It's not. It doesn't have to be like making songs or some grand thing. But even like, oh, sorry, even like, uh, whatever you would decide to do five minutes of meditation every day. Um, and so we're gonna do some work to document that daily pieces 365 uh, starting mind of chime podcast continuing to release music i've got and we have hundreds more songs with yelnam that's coming um i'm gonna start mobilizing people in the name of independent artist community service so that i think there's a lot of people who think that they're supporting artists and they are by playing their spotify and all that but like trying to give them some other examples of the action that they could take that would directly impact these artists lives a guy mm -hmm. who you talk about the song pressure cooker we had guy kendrick cummings who's been supporting my art since i was back at that billy's open mic stage i told you about he just like by looking at the internet through the filter of my art saw chuck d posting something about um wanting the song telling 45 to get off twitter so he just adds me like this dude kendrick that he took two seconds but what that did was connected those dots and then next thing you know chuck d is playing that song on 20 225 stations and so like i want to help people who are creating and who are supporting those creators the creators identify the ways that they can be helped and letting their supporters know but also encouraging those supporters to decide all right i've got one hour a week that i'm going to give as artistic community service mm -hmm. and uh and then because i know that that could impact markets music Boy, scenes, yeah. uh, all over the place um gosh what else I, I produce a podcast called next possession with steve uh hawkins who's one of my college coaches so we just had jay billis on last week we'll put a link to like all the stuff that i've got going on in the yeah yeah, yeah. send it over and i'll put it in uh, the, the description but, uh, continuing to spread the word of that and create these conversations that can give athletes coaches people interested in basketball parents of kids who are playing these perspectives that they uh wouldn't otherwise get um and then there's some stuff that I can't exactly describe yet, but I'm coming on to the journalistic side with a, an entity from my hometown who, and actually a streaming service that is uh, 
working to create to highlight like these geographically maybe like second tier markets to give these artists a better look than some of the major streaming services and right. uh, my roles still being defined there but uh yeah i'll say that and then i'm also kind of doubling back on uh i did this freestyle a while back a long freestyle in 2014 mm -hmm. that was like 17 and a half hours <laughs> and and so i've begun training i don't know if i i've begun training to go and like clean up what we didn't take care of at that time and the record now is 33 hours or something like that so, oh my uh, god yeah so i'm planting those seeds and 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 that happened the original one happened in 2014 and there's been so much that is advanced technologically that makes it a lot more feasible to do what we tried to do then um and so i'm going to use that as a tool of connection and see where that goes well you got a lot of stuff going on i'm really excited to see especially all of the things you're doing outside of just your your own personal music i feel like what you're describing with that um kind of the alternate streaming service, whatever you described, it made more sense yeah. than what I said. And the the community service artistically, that seems like it'll be very impactful. So really awesome. appreciate the work you're doing. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you again for, for coming on. This was a really enlightening conversation. I, I hope that I feel like there's a lot of things people can take, especially if they're kind of artists or creators, there's a lot of really good actionable advice, but also just as human beings because this stuff can apply to anything you don't even need to be like music at all so yeah. thank you again i really appreciate the time i appreciate you let's do it again if it makes sense down the line i i really this is great and uh and to speak to those people you were just talking about it's really just like get out of your way like we can come up with a million reasons why not to do this why not to take the action i'm gonna wait till tomorrow i'm gonna wait till just get out of your way start doing it and figure it out as you go tweak it as you go um you know the next time that we talk maybe i won't have these shadows behind me like this right because i'll but but that doesn't mean we're not going to do the conversation because the i wish my lighting was different and so just get out of your way plant those seeds of positivity and like it's going to come back if you do if you'll take action to do what you would do for free opportunities will come that uh will be connected to dollars if yeah. it's about dollars for you but um you're the real thing is that you are the money one below a fantastic artist he had such a profound impact on my life and continues to um but one of the things that he would talk about is like you are the money and so you don't have to go chase anything it's just like all right i'm gonna start where i'm at i'm gonna take action where i'm at and then i'm gonna attract my, if my intention is positive and i don't stop like you only fail if you quit if you just keep going then that other stuff is going to sort itself out I wasn't supposed to be a D1 athlete. I wasn't supposed to be, you know, at in those rooms with I, with Jay-Z or Kanye. I wasn't supposed to. Uh, if I don't go and teach these students, then I don't end up deciding to do 365 songs. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't get in the car to go team up with the Accidentals in New York that day, I don't go and meet Gary Vee. So, like, forget about all those names I dropped, but, like, you're connecting dots. And so if I'm going to put dots on the paper and then try to connect them, you could go and get it. And, and I don't know when the... You have to be able to visualize the destination and then reverse engineer it and then be prepared to shift along the way because especially at these times like we have to control what we can control and the way that we react is is the only thing that really matters how we prepare for the unknown but then how do we react because like we said like none of this is happening i we you and i aren't having this conversation if that plane doesn't crash in canada 
the worst thing that happened in my life is the best thing that happened in my life. I would erase it if I could, but I'm not mad about it. I mean, I'm not happy about it, but like, yeah, it is what it is. That history is not going to shift. So all I can do now is, is to, how am I going to pivot? How am I going to react? How am I going to encourage somebody who's 45 hearing this or somebody who's 10 hearing this that like, all you have to do is keep taking steps, keep planting seeds and control what you can control. And that I would say that our mental health, how we think, act and feel, whether you're going to try to go to the league or you're trying to uh, become like a top level scientist, if I don't take care of my physical and mental health, then I can clock all the reps I want. But if I'm not getting like the idea that like sleep is, I love Nas, but sleep is the cousin of death is like, (laughs) we got it. There's like, that's just a lie. And, uh, but I've championed that for a long time. Like, uh, you know, one thing that happened through the daily pieces, I started getting up way earlier. Right. And like, if you can get up and get the silence of that morning and attack, fill it with protective factors and attack what you want to do. Anything could happen. And clearly I could ramble for, you know, this could keep going, but. I'll get out of your, your ears now and your eyes, but I just appreciate anybody who hears this. Please don't hesitate to connect with me at Rick Chime, R-I-C-K-C-H-Y-M-E across all platforms. Uh, you're champions. You're not competing with anybody but yourself. That's all it really is about, like that you are the money. Shout to One Below, Subterraneous, Pontiac, Michigan. Man, I'll leave it on that. Thank you so much, Rick. Really, really Thank appreciate you. this. Believing is needed, but the judgment that comes sometimes seems so uneven. To scriptures, these heathens keep heaving cheap grievance towards family. Love leavens, if only we'd believe it. Dismiss our own sisters, it's sickening to see it. Why are you throwing those stones? So this concludes today's episode of the Rap Music Plug podcast presented by QLC TV. I hope this episode gave you some fresh new perspectives on the latest rap releases, as well as a recommendation for the next great rap record to add to your collection. But now that I've spoken, it's your turn to have your voice heard. So let's stay in touch. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Rowview, R-O-H-V-I-E-W, to connect with me on a personal level, where you'll be able to interact with my thoughts and perspectives on music, surely, but also on politics and sports as well. If you're an artist who wants to get their new song or album reviewed on the show, hit me up via email at qlctv.podcast at gmail.com or just send me a DM on Twitter or Instagram. I would love to give you public feedback through a review or private feedback if that's what you'd prefer. I would love to be a part of helping you grow as an artist. For exclusive content and updates related to the show, Follow the Rap Music Plug podcast on Facebook. You can find all of this information along with exclusive playlists created by myself by clicking the link that's in the episode's notes. So that's all for today. Talk to you soon. Peace.